This week, I compared large screen monitors, care planning apps, clinicians, vacation packages, and high-end chocolate. All efforts of privilege. Well, except the clinicians. I can afford them. I don't really need them. I actually purchase nothing. Mostly, I'm curious about comparing apples to apples, enough information, marketing to emotion, and marketing with facts. I also attended a day-long cost-measure meeting, the NQF National Quality Forum, Cost and Efficiency Measure Standing Committee. This meeting evaluates measures that Medicare uses to compare physicians performing common high-cost surgeries like heart surgery, hip replacement, and spine surgery. Ideally, we compare to find the best quality, lowest cost, and most accessible, whether it's surgery, monitors, apps, vacations, or chocolate. The more I explore comparison, the less I know. I asked around, and Bill Lawrence at PCORI, the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, referred me to Bob Phillips. Remember that links to organizations, articles, and concepts can be found in the transcript and show notes. Dr. Bob Phillips is the founding executive director of the Center for Professionalism and Value in Healthcare at the American Board of Family Medicine Foundation. Dr. Phillips practices part-time in a community-based residency program and is a professor of family medicine at Georgetown and Virginia Commonwealth Universities. He served as vice chair of the Council on Graduate Medical Education and co-chair of Population Health on the National Committee on Vital and Health Statistics. Dr. Phillips was elected to the National Academy of Medicine Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Leeuwen, a two-legged cisgender old white man of privilege who knows a little about a lot of health care and a lot about very little. We will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome circus of health care. Let's make some sense of all of this. Bob Phillips, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really, I need your help. I've been trying to explain, understand myself. This whole issue of comparing clinicians, comparing clinics, comparing institutions, just this whole comparing business. And it seems like nobody likes to be compared unless they feel like they're better to start with. So it's a dicey business, this comparing. And when the biggest thing I hear when we're, we look at comparison is it's not fair. 
It's not apples to apples. I'm different. Which is true. And so anyway, so let's just jump right in. You're, tell us about yourself and how you're connected to this, these issues. So tell us your off. connection to this work. Danny, I'm a practicing family physician. I have been now for 25 years, but most of my time is spent at the Center for Professionalism and Value in Healthcare, where we're really trying to align how health professionals are measured. What are the quality measures used to gauge whether you're a good doctor or a bad doctor? We're trying to align that with the things that we do that actually provide good care and the things that we value and patients value. And I'm in this space because I know that alignment is important to reducing burnout for clinicians and actually for delivering good care. And I've seen that in my own practice for a long time. The, thing that, the things that we work at really hard to get good scores on are not actually the things that we do that help patients the most. So for example. Doctor, for example, in primary care, we have really good evidence that continuity, that having a trusted healing relationship with a primary care clinician has good outcomes over time. And yet we, we destroy that when we try and maximize access, try to make sure that any patient who wants to get care gets that care as soon as they can. And while you would think that's important too, what that really is about is keeping my schedule full so that we can maximize our dollars per hour. And that gets right in the way of making sure that someone gets to see me when they need to see me because we've been together for a long time. And that's not always valued by young people who don't have a lot of health issues, but as we get older or if we have chronic health conditions, having the same person often means that things will turn out better. And so you like saying that there's sometimes there's tension between different ways of measuring quality, access versus continuity. There absolutely is a tension there, and both are important. Someone should be able to see be seen soon, and someone should be able to see someone they they need to see. And those are intention because one of them has an economic engine attached to it. And that mm-hmm. practice or the health system's incentive is to make sure my schedule stays full. Okay. But it's not just attention. If if that fundamental measure that's so important in primary care is not made high value, it means that I'm just getting churn. I'm just seeing different people all the time and I have no relationships with them. It's harder for me to learn what they've been through what their priorities are, what their values are, what they're scared of. And it's hard for me to change their behavior because it's hard for me to relate to them on a personal level when it's just a transaction. So that's one example of a really high value measure that doesn't get measured because it is intention and because we have a hundred other measures that we're trying to work to every day. We just published a paper with Larry Casalino at Columbia University last month that showed that physicians who have higher quality measures based on disease measures are more likely to be burned out. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. At least emotionally exhausted. If they get all the way to being callous, meaning they just stop caring, then that falls off. But they're burned out because they're working so hard to make, to maximize these quality scores. And it's not, it's not what they want. It's not what they want to be doing. And it's what, not what they think patients need. So they're really, they're expending so much time and effort to just check boxes and it gets in the way of good care. So check boxes like immunization. Yeah. Like my patients coming in for anxiety and they're going through a divorce 
And they really need someone to help them manage that problem. But I've, over here, I see I've got a list that says, well, you haven't had a colonoscopy this year. Oh, gosh, and you're diabetic and your A1C score is too high. And you're, oh, my, your blood pressure is up. And it just, it's so distracting to have mm-hmm. to work at those when those aren't the patient's priority today. And it's not what I should be doing today to make them feel better and actually be better. Okay. So if we're, I'm trying to think about this from the public's point of view. Mm-hmm. The, so I have MS, primary care and neurology. Those are my primary or my most important clinicians. And when my neurologist left town and I needed a new neurologist, I had no idea how to use publicly available data to compare one to the other. I knew it was important to me. They needed to use the portal. They couldn't be intimidated by me as an engaged patient. Those are actually, those are the two probably really important things that are not in measurement. No, that's right. That's right. I'm a member of NQF. I'm on different NQF panels. And I look at the National Quality Forum, NQF, and I I look at what they're measuring, and I can't imagine using those to decide what where to get care when I have the luxury of a few minutes to think about it, as opposed to when I need to go to the ER and something's yeah. a crisis. So how how does this whole measure to compare line up with what people might use to decide where to get care? So that's a great question, Nanny. So You can go to medicare.gov and pull up what used to be called physician compare, which is actually hard to find these days. It's now called care compare. Okay. And you can look up, you can look up a health system or you can look up a clinician and for the measures that, that they have, you can compare physicians, but I'm not sure if you do that, that it's actually going to be very useful. And that's the shame of it because that's what this is supposed to do. It's supposed to give you as a patient. Yeah, the way to differentiate, should I go to this doctor or this doctor? Or for um, my mother. I'm a caregiver and for them. So, you know, not just for me, for my family. And you'd like to have something better than Yelp for physicians, right? Yeah. But gosh, if you put into any search engine the name of a physician, you'll get eight different things that are ranking that physician based on patient reported data. And unfortunately, that's what most people have to rely on, unless they're fortunate like you to have a primary care doc who might be able to say, I really recommend this neurologist. Yes, yes. That is big. And I found a urologist that my my neurologist recommended. And my primary care doc was really interested that I liked her. I liked the urologist. Yeah. So that she added that information in her recommending to other people. She's like hungry for feedback. And if she refers somebody, she'll ask me, what was your experience? Was that a good referral? So yeah. Yeah. And I trust her, my, my PCP. When she sends me to somebody, I, it's more likely than not yeah, that it's a good referral. So, so I would say, I think that this ability to compare physicians on quality is that it's not a bad idea. It is certainly in its infancy. Um, uh, yeah. It's far from baked. 
And I think the processes we've set up, like the National Quality Forum, where patients are supposed to have a voice, and I'm so glad you're there, or CMS's endorsement process, which is driven by National Quality Forum, but not entirely. It's just not quite got it right yet. And it's why we have worked on what we call measures that matter. And we're trying to come up with a very small bucket of measures that are very important and very important to patients, very important to clinicians and are related to quality of life and costs. And so we have continuity right at the top. It's already endorsed by NQF and it's in the process for CMS. We have comprehensiveness, the ability of a primary care doc to deliver most of the care that a patient needs or at least to guide their care, mm-hmm. people that they trust. We have a measure of, it's a patient-reported measure called the person-centered primary care measure that was developed by patients and clinicians and payers. 11 questions that, the, that are from the patient's voice about the quality of the care and the quality of the relationship that they have with their clinician. And then we're working on two others that are still exploratory. One is around total cost of care. It does the patient, certainly. In, in primary care, it turns out it's, it is really continuity and comprehensiveness, how much they keep you from going on to having unnecessary costly care. And then the last one is trust. Yeah, um, trust. We developed measures of trust 20 years ago, but we never implemented them. Okay. We're not. We're now going to be testing those with patients to see how they relate to other quality measures. Oh, there's so much in what you're saying. Let's take the last one first, trust. I often um, compare like all the decisions that I have to make as a person with a chronic progressive illness. It's like putting in a kitchen. There's, There's so many decisions to make. And there's certain decisions that I want to reserve for myself. Like I don't want to mess with my pathological optimism. I don't want to hurt myself. I want to keep playing my saxophone. These are things that are important to me. The rest of it, I want to trust my clinicians. Like I don't understand why I take a $100,000 infusion for my MS. And I'm a smart person. And he's explained it to me like five times. And I still don't quite understand it. But he thinks I should do it. So I do it. And I feel like I need to trust so that I don't have to make all these decisions because it's exhausting. Check out the 11 questions in the person-centered primary care measure. Do they matter to you? Would you find them helpful? I would. I've never used the Yelp of physicians. I find the Yelp of restaurants entertaining, but not really helpful. Seems like an evaluation of the values of the rater. I suppose official measures also reflect the values of the measure developers and payers of that development. So go to the cost one. The part of that is just having some transparency about it, that that it's getting it seems like it more and more is out of pocket. And so for people who are privileged like I am, who have a Medicare Advantage program that really pays for quite a bit, there's still, each year, there's more out of my pocket. And yeah, and that is such a hard conversation because people don't know. And that's been, that's improved over the last couple of years with some of the transparency that hospitals have to have about what it costs 
to have a procedure done. So you can actually look that up now. I had a hernia repair in October of 2020 before that law went into effect. And my initial charge for the hernia repair was $55,000. Oh my God. And discounted for my out of network plan, it was $33,000. It was ridiculous. Now, if you look at the cost of that procedure on the hospital website, it says $7,500. Oh my goodness. Um, So the transparency requirements now by law, I think are going to drive down prices and allow patients to compare hospitals on things. And I think that's really important. But even upstream of that, I had a hernia, it needed to be repaired. But there's a lot of care that happens that doesn't need to happen. There's a lot of MRIs for headaches out of the gate before we've ruled out other things. There's just a lot of procedures done. I, I I have a patient with what now turns out to be long COVID. Uh, but was a lot more short of breath than usual, which is often a trigger for, of concern for having heart disease. And he's a 60-year-old gentleman, new onset of shortness of breath. And he went through the full workup before he got back to me. And I just started, it was all normal, thank goodness. But I started working backwards from that symptom. And the cluster of symptoms he had were just classic for long COVID. And had I known that ahead of time, I probably probably could have spared him some of that treatment some mm. of that investigation. And it's that kind of, it's that kind of having that kind of relationship, that prior knowledge of the patient, that trust that, that lets you protect them from downstream costs. And the other reason that's important, Danny, is because it's not just downstream costs. It's sometimes those things are harmful. Yeah. Sometimes the, those investigations can cause problems. Yeah. And and that's my job. And I can't do it very well if someone doesn't know me and trust me. Yeah. Another thing that I've tried on my podcast to explain and haven't done a very good job of is risk adjustment. And I know that when I look it up, it says risk adjustment is a statistical process that takes into account the underlying health status and health spending of the enrollees in an insurance plan when looking at their health care outcomes or health care costs. Yeah. And I was on an NQF panel about risk adjustment, and I can't say that I came out of the panel understanding any more than I went in, which is really how I found you, because I went to Bill Lawrence at PCORI and said, I need somebody to talk to, and he recommended you. You can find a detailed explanation of how risk adjustment is calculated at omcare.com slash risk dash adjustment. However, I'm not sure you will feel more knowledgeable after you read it. Listen on. But it really seems to me that it really, I know enough about statistics to be dangerous. And I know that when you like adjust things, that you're diluting something. So if you're going to average something that happens to a two-year-old and a 90-year-old, and you get a 44-year-old, you're not really looking at anything of use. So like in your work, 
how can we better understand what it is, what risk adjustment is, and why it's important and what it does for us? So risk adjustment, so it's not a two-year-old and a 90-year-old, and now you get a 44-year-old or 45-year-old. It's If my panel of patients is more complex than another physician's panel of patients, and my quality score is lower than that person's, if you don't adjust my quality score, you may think I'm a worse doctor. When I'm in reality, given the complexity of the patients I take care of, I may actually be doing a better job. Okay. So risk adjustment is largely to make sure that we're comparing apples to apples when you're making a decision, do I pay this physician more or less because they're doing a better or worse job? From that point, it makes sense. Where it gets lost a bit is when I'm in control of my risk score and that's driven because it's driven by how many diagnoses I put down for every one of my patients and how many diseases I say they have. And it's not to say that anyone's committing fraud, but it, it certainly creates an incentive for me to maximize and capture everything I can that makes that person look complex. And so you wind up with some plans who do that exceptionally well there are electronic health records that, that have that as an app on them. So some places get uh, scored very well or paid very well compared to someone else. And it's not really because they're taking care of more complex patients. They just do a better job of capturing all of those diagnoses. And that's unfair. And for some of our, our Medicare Advantage plans, they've been criticized because it actually it just pulls so much money out of the Medicare trust fund that it's going to go bankrupt sooner because their panels are risk adjusted to being very complex and they get more dollars for that reason. So it is troubled. But it seems like risk adjustment has to use certain data to decide. And you're talking about one feature, which is complexity and Mm -hmm. complexity as number of diagnoses, but it could be that complexity is availability of transportation. It's harder for them to get to the doctor. That's the complexity, but that's not anywhere in the numbers. It is not currently. You are absolutely right. So people may have different social issues that make their care outcomes worse and that should be in the risk adjustment too. So let me differentiate risk adjustment for payment, okay. risk adjustment of quality measures. Oh, okay. Are, okay. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So those are two different things. And what, so we've been working very hard on the risk adjustment for payment because we are underpaying clinics that take care of people from poor neighborhoods, people from rural areas, because like you said, those people lack some fundamental things like housing stability or food security or transportation. And those things affect their health far more than their diseases. So we're, we've been working at creating a new way to adjust payments and take into account those things and to avoid the gaming problem that has been revealed for diagnoses, we've focused on using your neighborhood. Okay. So like a zip code? Yeah. Or even smaller, even smaller than zip code. So census tracts in particular are usually about 2000 homes and they're designed to be more like that. All the people living in there are are more like 
other people living there than people in a different census tract. Okay. And based on your census tract, at the poverty level, the unemployment level, the home ownership, a single family household, education level, all of those things roll up to a risk score. We can demonstrate those things are related to your how long you live, whether you're likely to have a disease like diabetes, whether you're likely to show up in an emergency room. And we can use those to adjust payments so that the clinic taking care of the people in that neighborhood get more resources to help with housing, food, mm-hmm. transportation. So that's, that's, that's the risk okay. adjustment on that side. That's interesting. I hadn't heard it explained like that before. That's helpful. Now a word about our sponsor, Abridge. Use Abridge to record your doctor visit. Push the big pink button and record the conversation. Read the transcript or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app at abridge.com. A-B-R-I-D-G-E dot com. Or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Record your healthcare conversations. Let me know how it went. So what do you think we should we should have talked about that we haven't related to comparing and risk adjustment measures? That second that second bucket of risk adjustment for quality measures, Danny, okay. is the one that is the one that everyone's wrestling with because if you start using those social risk adjustments for neighborhoods, what some people are concerned about is that you'll be hiding poor care for poor people. Uh-huh. Some of us have argued back, that's not the purpose of risk adjusting the quality measures. It, it is so that you can understand, based on the social risks of that neighborhood, are we actually providing better care than it looks like we are? And while we could be doing better, we probably need more resources to achieve that. Yeah. And if you give more money based on social risk on one hand and you take away money as a penalty because of quality scores on the other, in the end, the balance is that clinic may not get any more resources than they did before. And so we need to pay them more and then we need to know, are they doing better or worse than they should be based on that population? And that's how we're trying to balance. One of the things that's weird about measures is that they seem like they're point in time rather than, to me, the purpose of measuring is to see, I took an action, is it working? And so it's like how it changes over time. How does, and that's, is that like part of the deal? So that that is a fantastic question. The problem is that we're in such, our measure pro, our measure efforts are such infancy that we can't yet do that on the measure side. Okay, but we're not just in the measure business at my center. We're also part of a certifying board, and that is okay. the role of certifying boards is to help our docs, our family physicians, know where am I now, and what can I do to get better. Yeah, and did I get better? That's part of certification. And that's why the certifying boards and the measures world like CMS need to work together to know where people are at point in time, but then to help them improve and demonstrate it.
The Joint Commission certifies hospitals and healthcare facilities, and the National Commission for Quality Assurance, NCQA, certifies health plans. The mission of the Joint Commission is to continuously improve healthcare for the public in collaboration with other stakeholders by evaluating healthcare organizations and inspiring them to excel in providing safe and effective care of the highest quality and value. The National Committee for Quality Assurance, NCQA, exists to improve the quality of healthcare. They work for better healthcare, better choices, and better health. Both certifying boards host a series of quality measures as well. In my career as a quality management professional, I led several health systems and managed care organizations prepare for joint commission and the NCQA certifying surveys. So is a certifying board like joint commission and NCQA or is it different? So joint commission works that way for hospitals. Certifying boards tend to function that way for physician specialties. So we certify family docs. There's another board for general internists. There's another one for pediatricians. Okay. Those boards should be working collaboratively with the measure world to build better measures, which is what we're trying to do, but also to come up with ways to help them improve. Wow. Well, a lot of food for thought here. I appreciate this. Thank you for your time. I have to chew on it. I'm grateful to you for helping me think about how people outside of my world understand this. And as you chew on it, if you think of better ways for us to talk about it, I'm happy to come back, Danny. That's great. Thank you. Clearly, I care about comparisons and risk adjustment or I wouldn't devote yet another episode on the topic. I care because I want the best for myself, my loved ones, and you. However, as we've heard, defining best challenges us all. Best at what moment in time? Under which circumstances? With what values, needs, and wants? Let's take comparing the quality and cost of fine chocolates. I gave my wife a birthday gift of 12 monthly shipments of various high-end chocolates. We both like dark chocolate. She can't or won't eat white chocolate. I will. The gift cost me $45 per month. That would be way too much for her to spend. Complicated when it's chocolate. The healthcare industry of regulators, funders, and providers compare what they can measure measurement in its infancy can't yet mass-produce measurement of what's important to the public and their clinician partners. How can we manage cost if we can't compare? I know I'm getting $45 a month worth of chocolate. How could the hernia repair range from $55,000 to $7,500? Makes no sense. So what can we do at this point? Most of us, it's likely not on our radar. For those of us with interest and time, we can pay attention. Ask our providers and health plans about cost and quality. Talk with referring docs about what's important to you when you obtain referrals. Give them feedback about the referral. Expect to know the cost of treatment and service in advance. Make a ruckus. 
let me know how it goes. the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources through my website, www.health-hats.com. Please subscribe and contribute. If you like it, share it. Thanks. See you around the block.